Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. On the show today, we had Jake Bruckman, who is the founder and CEO of CoinFund. CoinFund has been around for five plus years and really pioneered the concept of hybrid investing in the day and age of crypto that we are experiencing today. You know, you have VC funds, you have hedge funds, you have all these different concepts, but Jake's fund and Jake himself have been investing in blockchain infrastructure for over five years. But what was really cool about this episode, we talked about some really cool subjects like voting theory. How does governance in crypto work? And is Bitcoin's governance the best one that we have today? Is Ethereum's governance the best one we have today? What are some consensus algorithms that are being experimented in some other chains today that we don't know about? There were some that Jake explained to me today that I didn't even know about, and it was so, so cool. We talked about the fork in the road that everyone gets to when you're in this space. That's the question of what comes next. It's kind of like the maximalism question. Do you believe that Bitcoin is the only one that should be here and should come next? Or are there other coins and tokens that we can, you know, kind of discuss and buy and invest and theorize? And that is a question that we've probably all asked ourselves today. I don't want to ruin the rest of the conversation for you, but we talked about infrastructure. We talked about if you're interested in investing, if you want to be an angel investor, how the hell do you do it? What do you look for? Anyways, this was a great episode, and I'll talk to you guys right after the ads. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. You're a super loyal podcast listener, and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that BitPanda, which is a company based out of Austria, 
has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy to use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours, and please give them some love because they love me. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there, like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today on the show, we have Jake Bruckman. Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, thank you, Charlie, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Jake, you are the founder and CEO of CoinFund. And as we were talking about previously, and when we're talking about in Las Vegas, you have one of the longest running funds, VC funds. And I want you to tell me more about it in the space when you launched in 2015. The question I have for you that I wanted to start off with, um, the motto of your fund that I, when I was doing my research, is that the CoinFund directly contributes to the design of blockchain protocols and applications. I like that because it's a very specific, um, you know, like in your head that you're always following through to make sure you're always on the right track when you're getting involved with, with, with companies. I guess the question I have for you is when you guys launched in 2015, what were the blockchain protocols of the time and applications that you were willing to even invest in? Like, was that, was that a thing back then? That's a great question, Charlie. So, um, you know, Kind of my journey was, you know, starting in Bitcoin, like like every every one of us did, and then observing and sort of asking myself the question, what comes next? And you know, I come from technology. I'm an early adopter of stuff. I'm a uh, I like to fiddle with electronics and whatever. My dad was an engineer, right? Um, and I have the sense that people want to experiment with technology. They want to create their own 
you know, versions of it. They want to iterate it. They want to make it new. And that's exactly what happened. So when, when we were starting out, um, you know, at, at that time, we were kind of looking at the world of blockchains, where Bitcoin was kind of the first uh, great example of that. And we were asking, like, what happens next? And, and the thought was, we think that a lot of people will start, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of different projects that will try to innovate and iterate on this technology. And so when we <clears throat> began to formulate an idea for coin funds, like what does coin fund invest in? Um, we actually started with cryptocurrencies, right? This was really funny. Just a few weeks ago, I, I opened up that original white paper from, from 2015. And the idea of smart contracts wasn't even in it because it was like that, <laughs> it was that early. So the fund started um, with, you know, investing in cryptocurrency and mm -hmm. eventually everyone who gets involved in the space at some point in their, in their uh, career here or that career, but just their love or their involvement or whatever you call it. Um, they asked themselves that question that you said earlier. And I really, really like that you said that you said, what comes next? Right. And I feel like this is almost the maximalism question that everyone goes through. So you ask yourself, what comes next? If your answer is Bitcoin and then, and only Bitcoin and for, you know, and I've had, I've had amazing people that are, uh, that call themselves maximalist or they're in a certain tribe on this show and they're great people. And I have people on the show who are, who are vehemently against maximalism and believe that, mm -hmm. you know, um, but I guess it all comes down to the common denominator is they've gotten to the point where they ask, okay, what comes next? And the answer is Bitcoin. But for, for a lot of people and for you and even for me, the question of what comes next, I feel like the answer is, uh, for me, one thing. What is that answer for you? I think the answer for me is a world of um, you know many different uh, blockchain technologies. And in fact, this goes beyond blockchain. Uh, to me, it's a world of many different decentralization technologies. Um, some of which are Bitcoin, some of which are cryptocurrencies. Oh, interesting. I never... And all, all of them are, are kind of interoperating to create many different kinds of products in the world. Are there... I, I've never... I've, I've put out, up until this point, 36 episodes. I've never heard once someone take decentralization technologies and not put it under blockchain technology. Rather, what you're saying is... There are other decentralization technologies that are exist that are being theorized and potentially may come out, and you're going to be looking at those too. Oh, Charlie, decentralization technologies predate Bitcoin for sure. I mean, when you're talking about peer-to-peer -peer networks, when you're talking about Napster, when you're talking about um, BitTorrent, right? These are all examples of decentralized networks that came before now, the thing that separates the paradigm shift that occurred with the advent of Bitcoin is that suddenly these decentralized networks can transmit value. And that's the thing that this whole thing turns on. You invest in a lot of companies. You've you've worked you've worked, you know, as a technical product lead at Amazon. Um, you've uh, run a research company as a partner there. So, you know, you understand technology probably better than most people, myself included. I, I grew up like you. I think we're probably the same age. I grew up with the Napster, the LimeWire, the eDonkey. Um, actually, funny fact, you know, Jed McCaleb from from uh, a Stellar, one of the founders of Ripple, early Bitcoin guy, was actually the creator mm -hmm. of eDonkey. So the, nice. do you remember those technologies were like so, everyone was so against them. 
and the MPAA <laughs> and all that and all that crap. But now the same technologies that we're using with that is the technology we're using in in Spotify. Now, no one really understands that. Can you walk us through that and how the technologies that were so we were so against 10 years ago, like you burned at the stake are now the technologies that are powering all the applications especially in that specific field that we're using today? Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not actually sure that, um, that decentralized, uh, decentralization technologies like BitTorrent actually won, as, as you're saying, I, I, I would, you know, we, we'd what have about to take Spotify a look. and things like that. Well, I, so I know for a fact that you're absolutely right about that. Like Spotify started on a base of kind of, um, they're like, let, let us optimize delivery of audio based on uh, kind of like a decentral, decentralized network. But I'm almost certain that that is no longer really like a core technology of Spotify today. And, you know, it's really interesting, though, that decentralization technologies are put forward as technologies that are very resilient. And that part is true. Like today, BitTorrent still exists after, you know, 20 years or or more. Um, I'm not sure exactly when it came out. Maybe it was, I think it was 2005, right? So 15 years of of, of BitTorrent. um, And it's still going. But on a on a consumer level, right? Like who's paying for uh, who's paying for music versus who's pirating music? I actually think the the corporations won a little bit, and and one of the reasons is that they finally modernized and they started bringing people products. But in I the don't way think that- it was a fight, and I don't. And I, the reason I don't think that they won is that it was never a fight, meaning that there were there weren't technology. You know this that that. Technology is always slower than the market. So the market wants something, and then sometimes it takes a little bit longer for the product to come out. And then what you have eventually is what came out the fastest. So let's talk about let's talk about the market. The market wanted the ability to listen to music, to watch videos, whether they be illegal or legal videos, because you know they're 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 copyrighted. Mm-hmm. The 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 consumer world around the world, we wanted this. We wanted this on our computers, and we 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 wanted to move away from cassettes, DVDs, and CDs. Now we say we want it. No one really said that, but as we saw with the Napsters, the LimeWires, etc., um, people wanted them, and that's why they flourished. Now I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a a an opinion here that may be disagreed by a lot of people, yourself included. I really think that given the opportunity, if the Netflixes, if the Spotify's, if the the Hulu's, if if they existed uh, decent, you know, with with good UI, fast and mm-hmm. as large of a of a of a of a database, I think they would have been adopted faster. And I think that the MPAA, instead of fighting and all these organizations, instead of fighting like they're doing with Bitcoin today and with crypto today, instead of fighting, they should have embraced it faster. And instead, they took their sweet ass time. And then we saw what happened. They wasted I, a ton I, of money. I, absolutely, I actually absolutely agree with you. I think this has all been, you know, the advent of the Internet has, has been a process where information in general starts to move faster. And when people realize, hey, like I can get media content like video, I could get audio, I could watch, you know, sports, et cetera, on, on the Internet, um, that became that started to create a huge demand for what we now call, you know, on demand content or on demand video or on demand audio. Um, and the, so, so in my mind, there was a bit of a of a conflict there because the companies that were traditionally the you know, the originators of this content, namely the studios and the record labels 
the people who held the copyrights to it, they probably recognized that there was this demand, but they didn't want to uh, meet it because it was more profitable for them to kind of maintain, uh, you know, ownership of those contracts within the delivery systems that they had at the time. But at what, so at what point in that process, like you said, and and we're, we're just theorizing here. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not specifics, but at what point in the psyche of these companies, do you think someone woke up and realized and said, Hey, we need to create a better product here. And I'm not sure, you know, how involved, I'm not sure which was the first ones uh, in terms of like Spotify. I know, and, and I could be wrong, but I think it was actually Napster that started and LimeWire charge, actually charging money for what they were doing. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know how much of that money actually went to, to royalties, but at what point did um, these companies, do you think, realize that they have to start being able to, to compete or else the free market is actually going to take over um, you know, their, their, I mean- their bread and butter? I, I, that's a great question. I think I think it happened over time, and it, it was a bit of a you know a, an analogy to every other you know kind of innovative era that happened before, like an innovator's dilemma sort of situation, right? Where you had a bunch of uh, first of all, you had a bunch of demand for a slightly different digital product in delivering content. Then you had a bunch of startups like Spotify, right? It took Spotify something like ten years to to get to the point where you know to the product and the and the um, membership and, and revenue that it has today. All right. So, so a lot of startups came along and started to compete with like the big, uh, you know, distribution uh, sort of people. Right. And, and I think over time, those people also realized that if they, if they change their strategy, they could open up a little bit of new markets because now you had a younger generation of people that consumed, let's say music or, or other content in this way. And so it, it seems like it took about 20 years. Where are we in that cycle for crypto? And my second question, which is, I guess, is the bigger question. Is it fair for us to be even doing this for the past 12 minutes, comparing the two life cycles of these immense, huge technologies? Is it fair to do that with with crypto or are we seeing something completely different? So that's a great question. To answer your second question, I'm I'm kind of a I would say I'm like a centrist. Uh, or uh, you know, on on this sort of issue, I think um, I think we need to do both. I think we need to introduce radical innovation in the form of permissionless technologies and decentralization technologies, put them into market despite uh, kind of the risks of doing that, and and sort of the experiments that you know perform experiments around those technologies. And at the same time, I I unlike you know a lot of people disagree with this view. Uh, they say no, no, permissionless means permissionless, but what they're sort of uh, miss is that without negotiating kind of our present environment, without engaging governments, without engaging regulators, you know, some of these technologies are not really ever going to come to market. Now, there's there's a spectrum here, right? There's a, There are people who are very politically, you know, conservative, let's say on Bitcoin, who say Bitcoin has to be like that permissionless thing that is the forcing function uh, of let's say privacy and self sovereignty of money, and that's totally fine. That's a view that you can have, and that's a project that you can work on. But there is many other different projects that are that have much lower stakes, right? Like some people are like, "Hey, we just want to deliver a um, you know decentralized cloud storage network, right? Can we do this?" And and it's like in that context where you have to, I think you have to be innovative, but you have to you know navigate the environment at the same time. 
And where are we in crypto with this? Well, I think we've come 10 years into the technology and it definitely feels like it's moving very fast if you're like following the industry. But I actually think we're very, very early, right? Like even the base layers of these other kinds of networks like storage and computation networks, you know, they really haven't solidified uh, in the lower layers of the tech stack. Um, and we don't really even know what it's going to look like. So I think there's going to be a bunch more years of iterating on, on, on these technologies before we see some mainstream traction in them. You, you started investing five years ago, roughly, maybe four and a half. Um, mm-hmm. Are you still in, investing in the same types of companies and projects that you were then as you are now, or has that evolved? Oh, it has. A, it's it's a constant process of evolution. Tell like, me. I, like I, yeah, yeah. So, so like I was just saying um, a few minutes ago, right? When I opened up the Coin Fund white paper from 2015, we didn't even have a concept of of smart contract platform in there. Everything was formulated in terms of cryptocurrencies. We think Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. We think cryptocurrencies are cool. We think there are going to be a lot of cryptocurrencies. We think cryptocurrencies might be adopted as as payments, right? And and just like a year or two later, everything you know, was very different. It would have, we would have said, now there's cryptocurrencies and now there's smart contract platforms that are purporting to be able to create decentralization technologies with the same properties as a Bitcoin or as, an, as a you know, proof of work blockchain or, or proof of stake blockchain or whatever it is. Um, and then that process changed, you know, even more like, like, you know, as we were, you know, our first fund from 2015, we were like very digital asset focused. We said, no, we only invest in digital assets, uh, tokens, and and that's it. And then our current fund actually invests across private equity of companies building decentralized networks. It invests in the digital assets of those networks. It invests in cryptocurrencies, but it also directly participates in the networks to like perform the algorithms or whatever the, whatever it is that they those networks need to do. Maybe it's providing storage or computation. Maybe it's providing validation. Maybe it's being a, a miner. Um, we call that generalized mining, right? So, so that process of like what we invest in completely and utterly changes like almost every year for the last five years as we watch this space develop. And you, and you, but you run a business, right? So, so while this is evolving over time, um, the mechanisms on which you make money is also involving evolving, right? So, you know, you have VC, yes. you have private equity, but then that's the traditional and that's not, you know, you have VC funds that haven't changed in 50 years on how they make money. But now, you know, you have tokens, you have SAFs, you have future, you have validators, you have, uh, you have the ability to become a, a node. You have all these different mechanisms in which you can make money for better or for worse now or later. How are you evolving that over time? And is your like, due diligence documents and your mechanisms and funding, are they mm-hmm. changing on a company to company basis? Well, that's why, um, so you introduced us as a VC fund. I would say we position ourselves more as a crypto fund. What does I that say, mean? Yeah. So a crypto fund is probably more like a hybrid. And when I say like, like what does it mean a hybrid? It means that, that it can participate in a number of activities on both sides of that spectrum, right? So on the, on the early side of a decentralized network, you have people with a private company, with private equity, who are building that network, designing it, coding it. It's not in production yet. At that stage, you invest in private equity, and then your fund holds that private equity. Um, and that's the VC side of the hybrid, right? 
And then much later, when that network or cryptocurrency or decentralized storage network or whatever it is, is in production, um, it might have a digital asset and you can trade that digital asset on the market, right? Um, so, you know, Filecoin might be an example of something like that, right? And at that point, your fund is holding a liquid asset, just like a hedge fund does. And that liquid asset, you know, maybe is trading on 24-hour markets. So that's the hedge fund side of the hybrid. And then somewhere in the middle, you're like helping these networks kind of come to fruition. Maybe you're mining Bitcoin. Maybe you're mining Ethereum. Uh, maybe you are providing storage space. And that's um, an activity that we do, uh, what we call active network participation. And then we do that through, uh, through our fund as well. Um, but that absolutely requires us to, uh, you know, to stipulate that in our in our agreement and so forth. With, so with who who is it that's managing that? Is it an entrepreneur in residence? Is it your portfolio manager? Is it you? Because now what you're telling me is someone has to actively, mm-hmm. you know, I know you provide a lot, you know, you guys are very involved. You, you provide uh, networking services, team time, resources to your portfolio companies. Funds are, are, are not just investors and then they walk away. They're very involved. And I want you to tell me how more in a second. But um, now, do you need to have someone, what else, in addition to VC and hedge funds mm-hmm. now, do you have to be doing as a crypto fund to make sure that you are on top of your portfolio companies, that you are making money, and that you're doing whatever you need to do? Absolutely. So on that, on that middle part where we are directly working with networks, this is something that VCs and hedge funds you know, really haven't done as a vocation uh, in the past and are starting to do now in the context of crypto. Now, what that practically means is that you know, we have a technology team at CoinFund. Uh, uh, Jason Wong leads that on our team. And, um, you know, their job is to do things like manage mining operations or manage staking operations um, or even go deeper into like other opportunities. Um, and that team has had as many as uh, three members. Like we had also like a bunch of interns over the summer. And so it's a it's a fairly significant effort. And it's just as much a part of the investing process as anything else in our view. I got to get an intern on Untold Stories to help me out with some stuff. <laughs> Last year we had we had someone for IQ and and he was great, uh, Angel. He he killed it. And then he goes, but then the problem is they go back to school. But they do they right. they work so hard and and I and I paid them and it was great. I was like, I have a full time job for you. And he's like, No, I'm I want to go back to school. Well, that's why you got to get the seniors, and then yeah. the next year you hire them. That was that was my mistake. Um, <laughs> how do how do and, and if you've noticed, I'm going to be asking some of these questions from my own knowledge and for listener knowledge, and they may not always pertain to crypto. But for general knowledge, you hear the term VC firm, VC fund. Mm-hmm. Everyone hears this term. You know, you've, mm-hmm. if you if you if you in their space or you're in any industry, how do VC funds and not to take up all the time? How do they mm-hmm. actually make money? How do they work? Um, and what are some things that if you're a company, if you're someone who's trying to raise money? Um, how do you play the game? Because it is, right? It's a game. It's like dating or marriage almost. Like yeah, marriage on steroids. Is, and this is something that I've been like learning about and, and at times have struggled with and at times have seen the light on uh, because I'm not a VC actually. Like I'm an engineer, right? I studied math and computer science in, in school. And as an investor, a lot of people want to bucket me into that role of a, of, a, of a VC. They're like, oh, you're talking to companies. You're putting money into companies. You're a VC. So you don't call yourself um, a VC? I, I generally don't. People call me a VC. I generally like to call myself an investor or, you know, even like crypto capitalist or something like that. But 
Um, but in practice, they're right. Like in the, we do VC-like things. We run a fund. We invest in. So, so you asked me, like, what does a VC fund do? A VC fund, uh, you know, generally speaking, is um, a pool of money that a bunch of investors called LPs, you know, bring together. And then the managers of that fund go and deploy that capital into a very particular asset class. And that asset class is um, the private equity of early stage companies. You know, and in our context, Charlie, those are technology companies, right? So most VCs we know, they're investing in tech. Um, and then what happens is that about 95% of those companies fail. Another couple of percent of those companies get acquired somewhere in, you know, in the next like 10 years. And then on a 10 to 20 year horizon, just a few of those companies become, you know, very successful and they basically make the returns of the entire fund. So a VC fund is a little bit of like a net where you try to catch some fish and only one or two of those fish are going to be, you know, successful uh, investments. How many, how many are we talking about here? Like if you, if you get one really good exit uh, for your in, internally, What's your like figurehead in your head? Obviously, do you say if I get one in five, one in ten? What's the number? Well, I, like I said, I, I think it's uh, like ninety-five. You you should expect like something like ninety-five percent of your companies in your portfolio to just fail that and lose really? you money. Five out of a yeah. hundred to succeed. That's that's un- correct. So that's unbelievable. And when we say succeed, right? Somewhat like like you might have invested a million dollars in a company, and then one of those five might have had an exit, but that exit maybe it was only like $5 million, right? I have to invest so it, in 20 companies in order for one, if one is successful, then I, then I make money. That's, an, that's why, yeah. you know, investing is so difficult. So let me ask you a question. How does someone become an angel investor? You're in this space. You've been in, in the space for a while. A lot of my listeners made a little bit of money and they're interested in either, um, forget tokens for a second. These, you know, they want to invest in equity uh, maybe a convertible note, some debt. They know a little bit about it. What are some of the first things they could do in order to make sure? And I want to talk about angel investing, not Series A, Series B, because mm-hmm. as you know, that there's a little bit of always a relationship, a previous relationship between an angel investor and an investee, usually friends, family, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I'm actually not a very extensive angel investor. I think I've made two investments in that in that way uh in my whole in my whole investment career but but in general you know like our cio at coin fund alex felix he likes to say i i started writing checks to companies like the day that i could meaning the day that he became an accredited investor uh which was like pretty early on in his career and i think the role of angels is you know individuals that first of all have an interest in uh supporting the community of founders of being very very involved in it um, and, and, um, you know, are, are acting in a way that they're like a little fund angel checks are obviously smaller than you would get from kind of larger VC funds or like more established firms or more established folks. Um, and like you said, there's often this relationship that pre-exists. It's, it's often people, you know, who, who have close ties to the community of founders and, um, and really understand who these people are. And that's not an accident, right? Because whenever you're talking about early stage investing, like the earlier you go, it's the the more it becomes about who the people are building the company and not so much like what the product already is because the product doesn't exist yet, right? So the person who is the best angel is sort of the person who can identify 
almost like the best founders rather than the best products up front. Does that make sense? It completely makes sense. And I feel like who the team is, is continuously important as time goes on. But as mm-hmm. they're able to grow and build their management team, then you don't have to worry about that as much because then they get like seasoned CEOs and things like that. But you're right. In the beginning, very much in the middle and even towards the end, it's who it's who they are. I mean, you look at the whole WeWork fiasco. That all came down to who he was, right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's switch gears for a second. And I want to talk about consensus algorithms. You're probably asking me, why is Charlie asking me about <laughs> consensus algorithms? Well, you're probably one of the best persons to ask because you're, you know, you've been your uh, computer science major. You work in computer science and math. But you also have directly invested in how many? My list only shows 11, but it must be more than that. I think it's 11 in the past year, maybe, or two years. Um, I don't have the, okay. <laughs> I don't well, have the list. E- even me, but, so, but it's, definitely, it's definitely more than 11. Okay. It's more like, how, yeah. You probably get then hundreds of companies that come to you and that you spend a significant amount of time on. You have proof yes. of work. You have proof of stake, delegated proof of stake, and some other ones that we'll talk about. Yep. What are some weird, funky consensus algos that you've seen that you just say, wow, this is brilliant, or wow, this makes no sense? So there's like, uh, I would say broadly, two other classes of algorithms or, or network styles even that, um, you know, that most people don't talk about. One is the, um, the, the uh, directed acyclic graph or DAG uh, chain, right? And so these are things, let's see, projects that have had this topology have been IOTA in the past. Um, a lot of folks who look at IOT like end up there. Um, if you look at Hedera Hashgraph, like how their network works, it also works on a DAG structure. Uh, what's the mathematical What's that type of structure? What does that mean? Is like a federation? No, uh, not necessarily. What it means is that the, like we think of a blockchain as, you know, a bunch of boxes with arrows, like a series of blocks. Um, a DAG means that you like think of those boxes, but they're still boxes of transactions, but the, the arrows can go many different ways. A box can have many different arrows coming in and out of it, right? So it becomes more like a mesh than a chain. And there are certain reasons why that data structure is good or, or it has some properties. It sounds that, like it would be good yeah. for data because it would work similar like a database works, so right? It, it's it's good for it's absolutely it's good for data, but more importantly, it like in that structure, what you can do is you can kind of have consensus going on in multiple places of the network rather than how we have it in proof of work chains where we just really have this one a uh, single chain. And when you can have consensus going on in many different places, that creates scalability. So the, the main value proposition of DAG chains um, is that you have just better throughput, right? You can process more transactions over that work. What are the downsides security and privacy wise for something like that? I would say like, the, you know, academically and research wise, those kinds of algorithms are very nascent, you don't really see, like you see a lot of blockchains, proof of work and proof of stake blockchains in production today. You don't really have a lot of DAG chains in production today. And so it's hard to say like, is this truly secure? Like, do we have a security uh, guarantee like by experience or is it more like a theoretical proof? You know, none of, none of the mathematical proofs that we put forward are, you know, perfect with reality in the sense that they're all based on you know, some kind of assumption underneath about what the network is like, right? Um, 
So I would say the downsides is that DAGs are underutilized and proven, um, and we kind of don't know exactly what security looks like. And then, and then there's another kind of network, which I think you see uh, in a few projects where, um, you know, they kind of had this insight that this consensus basically like is equivalent to be able to stamp things in time uh, in, in the context of a decentralized network. So I'm thinking about things like Solana, right? And, and networks that use these things called verifiable delay functions and blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm actually not an expert on, on the, on the details of, of that. But, I'm already um, lost. But, yeah, I, exactly. but, I, but your point Very is technical. that there are other consensus algos out there that are being ex- experimented. Yes, but I, you know, if you ask me, I think proof of work and proof of stake are the ones that are most top of mind today as, you know, supporting these kinds of technologies. And we also achieve scalability by, by basically creating more chains and, and interoperating them together. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product, and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like, um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. Bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard 
for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. How does proof of stake scale? And how does how does proof of stake? I guess I still have some hangups with proof of stake. I'm gonna be honest mm-hmm. with you. I'm a big I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of proof of proof of work uh, as as an algorithm. I am a fan of proof of stake. Things like proof of brain, delegated proof of stake. I think. Um, they work second best against proof of work as of now, just because we don't have enough time to really test the two and we need a lot of time. But I guess mm-hmm. what I can't get past, and I do talk about this on the show sometimes, is what I get, what I can't get past, and I've spoken to you know physicists about this, is how it seems like proof of stake kind of creates this energy out of thin air, as opposed to something like proof of work, where it's transferring energy from mining, where people say it's a waste. I don't agree. Whereas proof of stake almost like needs proof of work to launch fairly. And then if you have a transition to proof of stake, it could be a little bit better. Whereas mm-hmm. I don't really understand how proof of stake at the outset, you can have fair distribution without fair distribution. Then you're almost like screwed at the start. Yeah. So what's your question, Charlie? <laughs> I don't, sometimes I don't have questions. It's more of like, that's my feeling. No, I, I, Do you I agree I, or disagree with me? So I, I actually agree with you. I agree with everything that you said. Then I guess we don't really have anything to talk about on that subject. Well, I, I think we should. <laughs> I, I think we should talk about it because this is probably an interesting topic for for your audience. And like to me, a lot of people early on, right? Why did they? Why was there a drive to proof of stake? Well, they they wanted to create scalability. That w- they were like, how can we have, uh, you know, this world changing technology that can't support all the people in the world? To be on this chain, yeah, but you're right? you're you're sacrificing your fair distribution, which screws you at the start. And again, 
people will completely disagree with me on crypto Twitter and places like that. And that's fine. I don't give a shit. Um, you, you sacrifice that. You also set bad precedents and, and then down the road. So it's like, you look at, you look at, you look at Bitcoin, right? Proof of work, great way, great way at start to, to scale, to, to grow fair distribution and truly decentralized the best we have at this point in time. Could it change? Yes, I think it could definitely change down the road. I don't see why not. Um, and it probably should change down the road if if something better comes along, right? But then you have scaling issues, and we don't mm-hmm. need to talk about that. Actually, I do want to talk well, about that, but well, not right I, now. I had a I had a quick point, right? So so my point was that early on, people went to proof of stake because they're like, this is the only way to scale in in their minds, right? But what we actually see today, this is like years later, is that most scalability is not happening on the base layer. Like most scalability is is happening off chain in the form of lightning networks and state channels and ZK rollups and layer two. And then um, that's one way. And then the other way is by creating many different chains and linking them together and having the scalability be the same on, on on the chain, but having like one app, we call this app dedicated networks, having one app live on a single chain. And I just had a Twitter thread yesterday, which is amazing. I was like, guys, like, tell me what all of the projects that you know are that are going to their own chain. And the, pe- and the people of crypto Twitter came back with maybe 20 projects. Like, Do you think lot. that's the future? Do you think we're going to be people? Uh, you, the exchanges are doing it. Binance, um, mm-hmm. OKX, and a lot of the exchanges are doing it. Um, but, and projects are flocking to those chains. Um, and so that's actually a good, that's actually interesting that you bring that up because maybe we should have brought that up down the, uh, earlier in the show when we were talking about like the evolution and five years on or towards the end when we talk about the future. Um, so let's, we'll jump, we'll add that in there down, you know, down later on in the show, but you're right. Um, chains, you know, companies building their own chains that I've totally forgot about that. That's not even something that Mm -hmm. we think about. Um, Mm -hmm. will we see more of that and why? Yes, we absolutely will see more of that. I think it will grow exponentially. You currently have projects like Cosmos and Polkadot, which are basically giving the market these toolkits that say, hey, you can go and create your own chain, right? And that's exactly what people are doing. So I, my prediction for 2020 is that we're going to have an explosion of app-dedicated chains. Now, why do people want to do that? Well, in the context of Ethereum, which is the platform where most people have built most decentralized applications today, you know, they've run into a bunch of limitations. One of those limitations is scalability. They're like, shit, we need to serve 100 billion customers. Can't do it on Ethereum because as the story goes, you know, it gets clogged, clogged up by crypto kitties whenever there's a, to a give, surge. Of, to yeah. give Vitalik credit, and, and it's actually interesting that we that I brought that up because there was a big Twitter thread about that this morning, but to give Vitalik credit, uh, to give Vitalik credit, to give Vitalik credit, he did, you know, when, when, when he set out for designing Ethereum with, with the other crew, uh, the people, you know, in the house, the, he did want to do, and he did set out to do proof of work in the beginning. And even as we speak, Ethereum is mineable with proof of work, but then they said down the road, it'll, you know, you'll have that difficulty bomb and we'll move to proof of stake. So I think Vitalik mm-hmm. realized that, hey, I need the best of both worlds. I need to have the the fairer distribution and the 
uh, the ability to have energy transferred into the security model in the beginning and then down the road have a proof of stake that's better scalable. So why are we having so much trouble with that? Why are we talking about an Ethereum 2.0? Why are we talking about Casper? Why because, are all this, what the hell is going on? Well, because the people who are founders who are facing the mainstream, who are facing potential business opportunities, they're like, we want to go out and get those opportunities now. And the promise of Ethereum scalability and proof of work is a roadmap that stretches into 2021. Some people even say 2022. And so people, so founders, they find themselves in a, in a, just a practical conundrum of like, what network do I go to that satisfies my requirements now? And one great example of that is Aragon, right? Aragon guys, uh, it's a decentralized network for, um, you know, for basically DAOs and governance. And they decided they want to go to their own chain. Um, they were for a long time tracking to go to Polkadot because Polkadot supported Ethereum smart contracts. But then um, my understanding is that that sort of fell off the Polkadot roadmap. And then Aragon's like, okay, we're moving to Cosmos now because Cosmos has EVM contracts. And so it's just a matter of practicality. Scalability is one reason why people go to app-dedicated chains. But the most important reason, Charlie, is that your chain is kind of the back end of your application. Like, I think of it as something called backendless uh, architecture, right? So you have Ethereum as sort of like the server, and then you have the application as sort of like the JavaScript front end or something with that server in the background. Now, if you share your server with millions of other people, there's bound to be a conflict of interest somewhere. Someone's going to want to like put in a change to the network that you don't like, or someone's going to clog up the throughput, or someone is going to optimize the network to work for their application, but not for your application, right? And so the major drive of why people want to go to app-dedicated networks is because they gain full control over how their backend works, essentially, right? And this is a problem for decentralized apps, it's it's a totally different problem than what people who are building cryptocurrencies want. But Jake, decentralized apps are assuming that these networks that they're building on are decentralized enough and are out of mm -hmm. that. There's enough decentralized power and control that they don't have to worry about your their business model being altered by the protocol itself. And so, what you're telling me is they're running into these problems now. Well, either they're running into these problems now. Quite well, they're, for literally. they're forecasting potential problems, I guess. As well, well, I'll give you an example. For example, like uh, there's this an is Istanbul, blowing my mind. Istanbul hard fork is is coming up like any day now, right? On Ethereum, once that hard fork goes through, it will actually like some of the changes there will actually invalidate some smart contracts that came before and are for, actually Aragon smart contracts. Um, they will invalidate those contracts on chain, right? So that, that is a hard fork. It's not contentious. It's like supported by the community. It's part of the roadmap, right? But the fact of the matter is that change is going to break somebody's app. Stupid question, though. Why, why, didn't, why didn't these companies think about this before when a lot of these chains launched, when a lot of these chains originally launched? Ripple, Ethereum, um, a lot of the top chains that we have today in the top 20, you know, launched in 2015, 2016, 2017. And a lot of these apps launched, you know, had their big ICOs or whatever right after, uh, and then started developing and building on these chains. And I've seen that happen. I, 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 right now, Jake, I, I've been a part of tokens that I've bought. 
I can think right off the top of my head, three different coins and tokens that I own that we did a, uh, a token swap, not we, but the company did a token swap and me being a token holder had to transfer, for example, from NEO to EOS mm -hmm. or Ethereum to mm -hmm. EOS or mm -hmm. EOS to, to uh, I forget which other chain. So it's, it's happening. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess I kind of almost want to know why it wasn't foreseen. And, you know, it, dude, if you remember, do you remember there were companies that said that they were going to launch their own chains in the beginning and then said, yes. oh, you know what? We're just going to go on Binance chain instead. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember. There are many cases like that, and that's probably because it's freaking hard to build a blockchain. It is very hard, and there's also a lot of security issues. Let's talk about risk. I mean, if you build your application, your company on a chain, and something happens with the chain, it's almost like you can you can put the you can put the blame on them on the chain itself. But when you have your own chain, and we've seen that happen. I mean, look at how many of the hacks um, have happened where. It was, and I'm talking about the smaller ones that we don't hear about. How many applications have broke and have had money stolen because the chain where this application was built on was not as secure as it needed to be? Right. So this is actually, now you're, you're leading me into a topic that is um, one of my favorite topics. Let's and that topic is, uh, is basically decentralized governance, right? So that responsibility that you're talking about in the context of a decentralized network needs to be managed. Like what changes go into my chain? When, how, what is, what is a legitimate change versus an illegitimate change, right? So in the context of Bitcoin, we understand that as um, kind of, you know, contentious versus non-contentious hard forks. In the context of decentralized networks that provide things like storage and computation resources, right? I think there needs to be a formal governance system that takes care of that. And of course, th especially this year, 2019, uh, we have been experimenting a lot with governance systems. We've had, you know, DAO frameworks like Aragon and DAO stack and some others. We've had experiments like Moloch DAO, which is literally a DAO with millions of dollars in it. That's supporting Ethereum projects. We had many forks of that, you know, and so on and so forth. And, um, I've actually spent a bunch of time mathematically studying, governance systems that I could talk about. But the answer to your question is, um, I think the responsibility of those changes has to lie with the community of that network, but in a formal way, in a way that like, you know, they're all empowered to like vote on what goes in. And if there's a bug or hack that results from that decision, the community shares the responsibility of that you know, of that event. Yeah, but the more governance, and I think this is going to be the first kind of, not disagreement, but where we don't agree on um, on that this may be the best way to do it. And I'll tell you, for me at least, I feel like the more you add in 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 governance and the more you do and the more you set up, you, you run into problems because, for example, um, first of all, good intentions are not transferable. So you can have the best of intentions. Vitalik can have the best of intentions. And you can do whatever you want to do. And I'm just picking on him because he's a good friend of mine and I'm allowed to. He can have the best <laughs> of intentions, right? Um, but the precedents that he sets affect the protocol down the road. And so my fear with governance is that the best governance is no governance. And I could be wrong and I'm okay with that. But I feel like the more governance you add, because dude, what the fuck do we know about governance? Like, we don't, oh. what do I know about governance? 
Oh, oh, well, actually, actually, we have about 300 years of academic research on governance, Who's social choice, and vote and voting systems. Humanity, um, just academia, right? Um, mathematicians, economists have, there's a body of literature on this stuff with math theorems and everything. This is my favorite subject now, socioeconomics, right? So these <laughs> governance, these governance mechanisms, and if you can, in your head, start thinking of, give us some like examples of, of some, some governance models. You know, we're familiar with proof of work on how Bitcoin works with the miners and the nodes. We're familiar with how Ethereum works with proof of stake. It's very simple. Um, how does things like delegated proof of stake work and how does some of, some of yep. the other consensus algos deal with uh, governance? Yeah, so so let, let me do that. But before before we jump in there, just let me kind of address your your original question or, or at least react to it, right? And my reaction to your to your uh, to your reaction of governance is that like this is the beauty of being able to experiment because on one end of the spectrum you have something like you know Bitcoin, which arguably has you know I don't know. Would you say that Bitcoin has no formal governance today? I think its lack of formal governance is its governance in and of itself. Okay. So, but like formally speaking, like Bitcoin doesn't have a voting system. It doesn't have like delegates. But that's its governance. The lack of governance doesn't mean, doesn't imply no governance. It's, it's, it was specifically set out that way to have an extreme Mm -hmm. lack of governance. Like that's one extreme. Now I may not agree that it's, and we, we have civil war. I mean, you can say whatever you want about what happened a few years ago with the whole scaling debate, but for lack of a better term, it mm-hmm. was a, a low level civil war. I mean, we had two, two, com- we, our community <laughs> forked three fucking times. Well, so here's my reaction to that, right? So on the, on one end of the spectrum, you have this like lack of governance that you're, that you're mentioning, Charlie, on the other end of the spectrum, you have completely the opposite with, with networks like Tezos, where every you know, every aspect of the network can be changed through a formal on-chain voting system. And then you have everything in between. And to me, like, like the, the, you know, the free market almost will determine, you know, which use cases will have which governance systems and which will be the best, right? So again, like in my mind, I think that there are systems like Bitcoin, which probably benefit from, from that configuration of governance. And I think that in other contexts, like a again, like a decentralized storage network, I think governance is going to be super important for the people who are participating on the supply side there, um, and also the customers. And to the point that they will want a formal governance system, and that governance system will also create value uh, that goes to the tokens of that system, and and makes it legitimate, right? So, like, there's a whole spectrum there, and I think we. I think we'll see both of those things. In Are there spectrum. any governance systems? And it's it's interesting you bring up Tezos because in my conversations with Arthur, we spent a lot of time talking about governance and he, he, you know, he did a pretty good job convincing me of the other extreme. And my job as a host of the show is to maintain an open mind, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the, the fairest governance models that you think uh, are worth even talking about? And and this is a crazy question. And um, do you think that we could ever see any type of governance model on top of Bitcoin? And I'm not talking about liquid. I'm not talking about side chains because 
those governance models only govern in, only govern the coins on those side chains. So people say, oh, Liquid is not Bitcoin. You're right. Liquid is not Bitcoin. Blockstream even says that it's not. And the point is that it's a it's a federated side chain. And yes, it is more centralized, but it exists on top of Bitcoin and you voluntarily can use it and be governed by it. But I'm saying is, do you think we'll ever see any type of on-chain governance for Bitcoin? Why or why not? Like I don't. It, I'm going to say I, that. I, I, I think I probably with you, I think that we won't. And that's because, you know, like what is a governance system kind of good for? A governance system is good for, uh, you know, a network that is changing like a lot and it needs a formal process to make those changes legitimate. And I feel like Bitcoin in particular being the first and largest network and, you know, um, just being around for so long and having such a strong community, I feel that they already have a mechanism to do that in the form of like no governance. Now, let me let me transition to your first question, which is which is then you're like saying like, well, what are good, good and fair governance systems? I actually think all the governance systems we have in crypto and blockchain today suck. Uh, they're not good and they're very naive. I thought you were going to say are awesome. Right? No, 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 no. <laughs> No, I think they're very naive, and I think they're like this natural consequence. That's of my just, point. Just doing the simplest thing and not paying attention to like all the knowledge and all the research that we as humanity have uh, already accumulated about voting systems. And because here's what Jake, I mean. they they rev- they it, they rely on good intentions. That's the problem. But what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. So. Like the first of all, like every governance system that you have um, that you have encountered on chain in blockchain, chances are, is a one token one vote system, and what that does is it creates um, something called a weighted voting system. And in a weighted voting system, the people who have more tokens have more voting power. And what's really fucked up, and f- pardon my French here, sorry, but I'm very passionate about this I've said topic. fuck like four times already. It's all good. <laughs> We're already under the explicit tag for Apple, so it's all good. See what you got mean. Got it. Okay. All right. So um, so the, the really messed up part of, of a weighted voting system, and this is a mathematical fact, um, is that you can have a minority stake in such a system, but you can control the majority of outcomes in that system. Like there's a disproportional relationship between your ownership and your voting power in such a system. And so a lot of people complain and they say, well, you see these these on-chain voting systems, they result in uh, plutocracy where like a few rich people who can buy tokens control all the outcomes. And they're kind of right. Um, And I agree with that mathematically. They're kind of wrong in the sense that like, well, you can find cases where that's okay. That's actually a good governance system for certain cases. Um, but here's what I'm really getting at. We need governance systems where it's like one person, one vote. And that's the really hard problem in blockchain. So now today. aren't these, aren't the ones that have, that we have today, the thousands of chains that we have today, are they doomed? Are they doomed now because that they are already launched with, let's just say distribution that may not be fair or various powers that benefit the early adopters or people who do certain things or whatever you call them. They're not going to be incentivized to want to change over. So are these protocols doomed? I think, I don't know if they're doomed, but I, I think like, you know, if they're a protocol where like egalitarianism and a good wide token distribution is really important to running the network successfully, they might be doomed. They might see like, 
lower prices, less usage over time, and they might naturally migrate to a different system uh, that supports a better distribution. I, you know, I don't think that necessarily, you know, uh, having like a bad um, distribution, like a very lopsided distribution is necessarily bad for all cases, right? Like, like imagine running, uh, imagine running like a software, like an open source software project. Like inevitably, there are going to be people who are spending much more time and are much bigger experts on the code base than other people. And you almost want those people to have a disproportionate say into which code changes go in, right? And I can see like in some of those contexts, you know, having this sort of lopsided voting system might actually not be so bad. It's fair. It's like these people are the experts on the system. When you're talking about public goods, when you're talking about like giving water to people, giving electricity to people, and then in the futuristic sense, giving like cloud storage to people, giving computation to people, you probably don't want that system. You probably want a more um, evenly weighted system where everyone has a voice. And the fact of the matter is, one token, one vote, weighted voting systems in blockchain that are in blockchain today don't satisfy that criteria. And so what's missing between us and that world well, I think it's, you know, in some contexts, it's like some kind of, you know, strong identity that allows you to implement, uh, you know, to, to break the civil, you know, the civil uh, problems of these networks and, and allow you to have like one person vote once. So let me ask you an example um, of what you yep. just said, because I agree, but I disagree. Uh, there's, okay. a, there's a chain. It's a great chain. Everyone, um, a lot of people love it. Uh, for example, um, top of my head, Binance chain. We're just just to say for because we've been using Binance as an example here, um, and CZ is a big boy. So you look at you look at Binance chain. BNB is one of the top performing uh, coins year over year. Um, the mechanics, the token economics. You're a big token economics guy. They're great. Uh, they burn them. There's utility. Uh, it's a for all intents and purposes. I don't need to get into why, but everyone loves BNB. Everyone loves Binance chain. Everyone loves Binance. Whatever. Well, there's one that I know of downside with Binance chain and BNB that the detractors will tell me why it's doomed down the road. And that's because the distribution, um, basically CZ is still holding like 80% of all the tokens. I don't know the exact number, but it's a very large double digit percentage that Binance is still holding onto. Yep. And that's, you know, we talk about fair distribution. That's the perfect example of a great chain, great token, a great product that's extremely fair and great, but you have this issue with distribution from the start. Right. So, I mean, is that is that doomed or you think, you know, that could be solved down the road? But but even the act, let's just say CZ one day woke up and said, hey, the 60 or 70 percent of all the tokens that we have here. And I forget the exact number. We're going to distribute it evenly across all the current holders. And then we're going to set a faucet or however they do it in the most fair way. And he does that is the fact that he can do that in and of itself. The mere fact that there is a single party that can do that. That for me is enough of saying, hey, hey, I may not want to be involved in this project. What about you? Yeah, so th this, is a, this is a fantastic point, Charlie. And um, if, if uh, the listeners pull up the blog at CoinFund, I recently had a, uh, an article on this very topic called, Are Blockchain Voters Dummies? And oh, I got to read this. Just, 
Yeah. So, so dummies is a, is a technical term from voting theory, which basically means, you know, a dummy is someone whose vote doesn't count. And so what we can do using, um, you know, voting theory, this has been around for, for at least since the 1960s, is we can measure uh, these things called indices of, of voting power. And in particular, in that article, I talk about the Bonshoff voting index. So if you were to take Binance Chain, where CZ owns 80% of the tokens, and if you were to measure the voting power of every constituent of that chain, including him, you will find that because he has such a disproportionate amount of tokens, chances are he controls 99.9% of the outcomes of any vote. And this is a mathematical fact, right? So if someone knows that that's true, are they going to want to vote? No. You know, like, they're not going to want to vote. Well, then why do we vote in our presidential elections here in the U.S.? because Because in the presidential election in the U.S., we have a system that doesn't give well, so it, it actually does give disproportional sort of voting power to states, and and it, um, but but it, it's it's sort of fair on a state level and right? county so level we, too, and county level too. Um, I mean, so, you've had so, counties so actually, sway the election. Actually, you, the, 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 there have been studies on this. If you measure like the actual voting power of an, invi- an individual in the United States, I have read papers on this. Um, if you, I live in New York, right? So if I, if you're in New York, you will have some of the smallest voting power in this whole country. But if you live in a, you know, in a sort of like a less densely populated state like Utah, you'll have much more voting power. Um, I live in a swing but, state in Florida, so I have a, I, do I have more voting power or less? And I live in a very, I live in the county that elected Trump, like basically the the, the largest Republican concentration is where I live. So, not not so, on purpose. Okay. <laughs> so the intu- the intuition of, on Florida is like this. If Florida is a swing state, then if you can swing Florida, then Florida can swing the presidency. And so you're like kind of more powerful. Now, the, now whether you can swing Florida depends on how many people you're sort of competing against in Florida. So I don't know. What, what's the population of Florida, Charlie? There's 15 million of us. Okay. So it's not like the biggest state, but it's not like the smallest state. And so I would say, like, if you lived in a state that had very few people, then it would be easier for you to swing. I guess it. Florida is swingable. That's why, like, some states, like, you're not going to swing, you know, a southern heavy, Demo- you know, Republican state. Well, now you may be able to, but that's the mm-hmm. thinking. Whereas Florida is very, very Republican, but we have the three. Some we have three of the some of the largest uh, uh, liberal Democratic cities: Tampa, Orlando, Miami. Uh, mm-hmm. population centers, they're the top population centers in the country. I think Tampa is like nine and it's not even the biggest. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of the current, the current thinking. But I want to ask you a question and I'm actually happy that you're here because I always ask and I never get a, an answer that satisfies me. And I didn't mm-hmm. know that voting theory actually existed. I know. Don't make fun of me. Okay. Simple question. Not a lot of people know that. Now understand who I am. I lost my, my, my right to vote uh, six years ago. And I never really cared for voting when who, what 22, 23 year old cares. But as the years go by, you learn that localized voting is far more important um, than than, you know, the, the presidential elections. And, and you can mm-hmm. tell me if I'm wrong on that, but that's, you know, my belief. But I lost my right to vote. So we talk about voting power this November. I'll have the for the first year of my life. Actually, I'll be getting 
my my right. I got my right to vote back. Thank you for everyone who voted for me in the Florida elections a few years ago. But there's a million mm-hmm. of us felons out of 15 million. So we're like an eight or nine percent voting block. We're huge. Um, and so why going to my question, why why are why is voting turnout less where it matters more? But turning vote out uh, 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 turnout for voting for like presidential elections where it matters less is greater. That's, uh, <laughs> I I've mean, never been I, able to get an answer that satisfies me. And I'm not looking for you to well, do that, but you, you understand I, voting theory. I'm not, I'm not a, like a, I'm not like a researcher of no. voting in, <laughs> but in, you're in, smart. Like on, a, on the United States level, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you like what my intuition is. Please. You know, my, my intuition is that unfortunately people just are are not well informed about about voting systems, but it matters so much. I mean, local local elections. Like I don't know in Florida, here in my city, we have a city council. The city council. I, I like the way it runs actually because you have a city council of five people that are voted at large, so it's not district based. And then you have, um, and that which I I do like, but that that's heavily debated. And then that what I like about it is there's no mayor. You know, the mayor is a is a ceremonial mm-hmm. position. But then mm-hmm. the brilliant thing here is the five commissioners hire a CEO. And the CEO who's apolitical, who's been working for our city for 20 something years, his job is to run the city like a business. And so our city and people, it's confusing when they come visit me for a few days and they see it. Our city runs a lot more efficiently than, for example, Brooklyn, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I like that. But what I don't understand is why don't people go out and vote locally? It you have thousands of people turn out and it matters so much to your property taxes, to your livelihoods, to 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 construction when you're driving to work, to everything. I mean, when the bars can stay open late, your your life matters so much. And you have these people that run that it's so easy to buy these elections. God, I I jokingly went mm-hmm. up to, to a Republican fixer two years ago and I was like, Yeah, how much does it cost to buy a commissioner? And he thought I was serious. You know what he said? Guess, by the way, guess what it would cost to buy a city commissioner in in in, in a city, um, you know, like mine, a few hundred thousand people, fifty grand. Oh, wow, not even that much, huh? Yeah, and I, I was completely put off by that. And the reason is, is that people don't come out and vote on local elections. So I totally agree with you, Charlie. I think like, um, I think like when you look at which governance systems are more effective at actually solving problems. The ones that are, you know, folk like that empower like local people to solve their local problems work better. I was actually influenced on this by uh, a gentleman from Switzerland who who educated me about how like the Swiss system works. And out of all European countries and probably all the countries in the world, Switzerland is one of the most decentralized, uh, you know, c- governance systems that I could even like imagine. They have a very thin federal government whose mandate is very small. Like it's just like literally like don't murder people. <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating, right? No, no, and, no. Uh, you're right. D- direct democracy works there. And uh, their federal government has gotten largely smaller. When I read a study that right. since the inception of our government, you know, adjusted for inflation, right? Since the 1700s, the size of our government uh, and there are a lot of metrics that that go into the word size, but the size of our government, federal government, largely has not changed in hundreds of years. Right, um, where every and, president and, promises to to make government smaller. And in Switzerland, they actually did it. And what's the the really cool part is when he told me about how you become, a, you know, a citizen there, and basically he said you have to move 
into one of their, you know, quote unquote states, or they're called cantons. Um, you, you move there, you have to live there for 12 years. And after 12 years, you can apply for citizenship and your neighbors, essentially, your like local people have to vote you in. And so for 12 years, you, you know, you're incentivized to like be a good, productive member of the community, to do good things for your neighbors, to get along with them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it, and it promotes this, I, I think, kind of healthier society. Um, and it, it, it allows people sort of the local governments to solve the local problems much more effectively. When I think about the U.S., I think about what we've just been doing here on the federal level for a number of years. Like, people are trying to, like, solve health care with, you know, first Obamacare, now now this Trump stuff, right? And no one's actually been able to do it because it's such a... It, it, like, health care is, like, a lower-level problem, but it's being... It's trying to be mandated from the top, and I don't think that's a good you know, solution for it. I mean, the hope is down the road with with these mechanisms and these protocols and these networks that we're experimenting with now. The idea is that a lot of these problems that we're running into today can be solved by various, various different governance models that are being experimented on. And so down the road, we can test and try them out. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Jake Brockman, CEO of CoinFund, you've been around for so long in the space. Um, pioneered the concept of the hybrid fund model in the crypto space. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people follow what you guys are going to be working on? How can uh, our listeners follow follow you and your staff and yeah. your portfolio companies? Please follow me on Twitter at J-B-R-U-K-H, Jake Brookman. And please read our blog. It's blog.coinfund.io. And you can check out our website as well. Um, we have, a, if you're in New York, we run a monthly meetup called Rabbit Hole Talks. Charlie, if you're ever coming through, we'd love to have you speak. The next time I'm um, in New York, I'm going to come and we'll do a sit-down talk together for this. Oh, this is awesome. That would be fantastic. Um, and also, thank you so much. Like, you've asked some, you know, we've covered some amazing topics and you've asked some great questions that I kind of no- don't normally get. I'm so, like, in that circuit of uh, decentralized, you know, tokens and and, and stuff. But, like, it's so refreshing to get your perspective on it. And, and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And you've, you've taught me a lot of things today, like voting theory. I didn't know some of these things existed. I'm going to go read up on some papers. But again, thank you. And it was my pleasure to be here with you. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Charlie. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offord. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.